Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Chris Kresser is the best-selling author of Unconventional Medicine and also The Paleo Cure. He's a licensed acupuncturist and founder of Kresser Institute, an organization that trains healthcare practitioners in applying functional medicine and an ancestral diet and lifestyle in their practices. He's one of the most trusted voices in wellness, and today on the podcast, he's sharing his personal journey to health, overcoming chronic illness which lasted for years. Chris, welcome. Thanks, Jason. Pleasure to be here. Great to see you. It's been a long time since you spoke at Revitalize in 2014, which everyone should check out. It was an awesome talk. Thank you. So let's rewind and go back and where it all began in your personal health journey. Yeah, so um, I was in my early 20s, and this was 1998, I think, quite a while ago. And I took off, uh, sold everything I owned, took off to see the world. I was going to do a kind of two-year travel around the world and surf uh, journey. I'm a lifelong surfer. And I was about six months, nine months into that in Indonesia on a little island called Sumbawa. And I got violently ill with, you know, classic tropical illness symptoms, diarrhea, vomiting, nausea, delirium. Don't really remember much of those three days. Um, And an Australian guy who was in the village that I was staying in had some antibiotics. So I took them and that kind of brought me back from the brink and I continued traveling for another several months but it started to become clear that this was evolving into a complex chronic illness and you know after about a year and a half on the road I went went home uh, to try to get some help and this started a process of seeing probably 30 to 50 doctors and practitioners over the following three to five years. I I flew around the world to see specialists, all different kinds of specialists, tropical disease, infectious disease. And uh, very long story short, I, you know, came after about four or five years, just was was brought to my knees. I mean, I didn't know if I was going to be able to work, have a relationship, uh, have a future at all. I was just kind of spending most of my days. a long time to be really ill yeah i mean i was i was spending a lot of my days just curled up in a ball on the floor in pain and just um not you know where you want to be in your early in your mid-20s and um it was really scary and i I wasn't sure at all what was going to happen and over, over time through um you know, a lot of my own research, it wasn't that the doctors that I saw weren't caring. It's just that they weren't really equipped to help somebody in my situation. Um, so I started to kind of expand my search and look beyond conventional medicine. I saw a lot of healers in a lot, you know, traditional medical modalities, and I, those were more helpful. But ultimately, it was it was stumbling across a, a paleo type of diet and functional medicine kind of approach that made the biggest difference for me and allowed me to, um, you know, work my way back to health. And in that process, 
people around me started to ask questions uh, because they had seen how sick I was and they were witnessing my recovery and wanted to know, uh, you know, how I figured it out and what I was doing. And, and uh, it began to dawn on me that what I had learned in that experience uh, could be of value to other people and, and it could be a way that I could um, turn that experience into something uh, that would serve others. And so I, you know, I was not the kid who wanted to be a doctor when, when he grew up or a healthcare practitioner of any kind. It was not really even on my list. Um, but through this experience, I got you know, deeply interested in it and also realized that it's a, it's a way that I could help others and that there were some big gaps in our healthcare system that uh, really needed to be filled. But I, I, if I recall correctly, you were a pretty attuned guy. It's not like you were very unhealthy when this health crisis was no. going on. I, I vaguely remember, did you, sp- you spent like a month at Esalen, I want to say? Or I you spent, a lot spent of, two years there. Two years at Esalen. <laughs> yeah. like most people go to Esalen for like a weekend, you know? Yeah. You spent two years. Like you yeah. were all in. And was so it in. wasn't like you were... You know, eating crappy Big, Big fast Max. food no. and, you know, drinking heavily and doing all the things you're not supposed to do in your 20s and then you got sick. No, no. I mean, I was an athlete all growing up. I almost played college basketball and I was a surfer. And, you know, when when I was when I got sick, I was surfing for six to eight hours a day. I was in the peak shape of my life, you know, so and, and eating very well. So this was this was just one of those curveballs that life throws it was a parasite right yeah multiple, multiple parasites. parasites yeah which yeah. i i think so i i don't know if i i've had parasites and it's it's one of those things when it hits you you don't energy's gone like i get anxious i felt yeah. terrible and i like you i, I didn't go to it, luckily like i knew frank lipman and right yeah. away he was like you need to go here and here and we, yeah. we took care of it but like, holy shit, you feel terrible. Yeah. And you go to a Western doctor and people look at you like you're nuts. Right. And they're complicated. And after that experience, and I'm curious what you think, I'm like, you know what? I bet there are millions of people walking around with parasites and have no idea. Absolutely. I mean, we, we test every patient that walks in the door with, you know, we do pretty extensive gut testing and uh, it's not unusual at all for us to find parasites in people who had no idea. And, and furthermore, people who have not left the country, you know, there's sure. this myth. That, I didn't go anywhere. I right. got at a salad bar in New York exactly. City. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, uh, and last summer, actually, I um, had a deja vu experience because my wife and I were both affected by a food poisoning outbreak in the Bay Area. Oh, my God. I'm so, so sorry. I contracted parasites again oh. and, uh, and entropathogenic E. coli, which I'd never had before. So... Uh, and it was kind of like a, you know, fortunately it didn't take me down to the same extent as that initial episode did. And I now knew what to do right. <laughs> to, to recover, but it was, um, you know, a, a pretty powerful reminder of how difficult that can be. And so this was cyclospora, which is a parasite that used to be rare in, in the U S but is becoming more common because of the global food supply. Mm-hmm. So in our case, you know, I, I was I got actually got a call from the Berkeley Public Health Department after I tested positive and they told me that there had been an outbreak in the Bay Area and I we had just been to Mexico not too long before that so I was thinking that it was in Mexico but then when when I found out that that there'd been a big outbreak we actually kind of traced it back to some basil at a Vietnamese you know high quality Vietnamese restaurant wow. that we had eaten at and 
public health department said, yeah, so, you know, this basil gets washed in contaminated water in Guatemala, and then it gets shipped to, you know, the Bay Area and gets distributed around to all the restaurants in the Bay Area, and you get a cyclospora outbreak in first world country. Wow. Like my general rule of thumb is try to eat cooked food, especially yeah. vegetables. Yeah. Guacamole, you know, it's guacamole. I would yeah. say yes to guacamole. <laughs> yeah. But like, what are the, I'm just curious, like, what are sort of the best practices you, aside with like eating incredible restaurants, but even that you're not immune. But like, yeah. I stay away from like danger zones, like open salad bars, never. Yeah. yeah, that's probably wise. I mean, to some extent, it depends on how resilient you are, too. I mean, I, I know that a lot of other people in the Bay Area got exposed to that. And like, my wife is a, is a great example uh, of how much the host ecosystem matters. So, my wife was exposed to the same food. She got sick, but she recovered fairly quickly because she has no history of, right. you know, the gut stuff that I had. But I took longer to recover because I had that kind of, even though I recovered from that initial illness, I still have some probably residual inherent sure. disruption there. It's like I always say everyone has weak spots, yeah. an illness, injury, whatever you want to call it that that's where you're vulnerable exactly whether it's like you know talking about the warriors or rap like you have you know <laughs> yeah. if, if an area of your body is weak like you're gonna try yeah. to compensate it's weak or some people have extremely strong bodies but they have a lot of difficulties in relationships mm -hmm. in their lives or they have difficulty staying focused on tasks or whatever it is so we all have our challenges so how do you in this process you became a license, you know, licensed acupuncturist and studying Chinese. So you're studying Chinese medicine, you're interacting with Western medicine, and you're becoming uh, an expert in functional medicine, if you will, functional nutrition. Mm -hmm. Like, how do all these things, like, you have such a unique practice and point of view that is one that I would say is one of the most well-respected in wellness. Like, how do you describe your, your view on wellness and what you look for? You know, Chinese medicine, ancient ancient practice, uh, very powerful. Western could talk about mm -hmm. that. And then you got mm -hmm. functional medicine, which is a little bit of a bridge. So how do you describe what, how you practice? That's a really good question. I don't know that I can easily answer it because I rarely have an opportunity to just, you know, describe it in a nutshell. But I would say that the Chinese medicine, you know, I, I decided to go back and study Chinese medicine and acupuncture the time that I did because uh, you know, I was considering medical school and doing a post-bac. I was actually enrolled already in a post-bac pre-med program because I didn't do pre-med as an undergrad. I had no <laughs> idea that I was going to go, go be going down this path. Um, and then I went and, and interviewed 10 doctors. I thought, you know, this is probably a good idea to do some market research, so to speak, and see how doctors feel about being doctors. And of the 10 I interviewed, eight advised me not to go into conventional medicine. <laughs> Um, for various reasons that we can talk about later. Um, so, and, and the practitioners that had impacted me the most in my healing journey were, were actually acupuncturists. So I was influenced by that. But by the time I was finishing acupuncture school, I already knew that I wasn't going to practice Chinese medicine and acupuncture. I was, um, and still uh, am, tremendously respectful of the paradigm of Chinese medicine and how it looks at the body as a holistic system instead of a collection of parts, which is how conventional medicine looks at it. And I think that always informs my, my way of looking at the body. 
Um, and I also uh, became an herbalist in California. When you study Chinese medicine, you, you become a licensed herbalist and a licensed ac acupuncturist. And I still use herbs um, a lot in my practice with my patients. So that was really valuable. Um, but as I was finishing that training, I had already learned about functional medicine. And to me, it was a, a perfect um, model because it synthesized the holistic approach of functional medicine and the way and the systems uh, perspective of looking at the body as a whole and as a collection of interdependent systems. But then it also utilized modern diagnostics like blood testing and stool testing and saliva testing, things that weren't available in Chinese medicine 2,000 years ago that I think can actually be really helpful in determining what the source or the cause of the problem is, and also using some conventional, more conventional therapeutic modalities. You know, in our practice, we do sometimes prescribe medication when it's necessary. It's not, it's rarely the first thing that we do, but there are some situations where that can be really helpful. Parasite infections, Yeah, I, for I example. did it all. Yeah. I, I, with, with Frank, I, I did parasites and yeah. herbs. Excuse me, I did, herbs uh, and I, did, uh, I did the trunks and I did the yeah. herbs. And he's like, you have to do it. And Absolutely. I did it multiple times and yeah. I healed. Yeah, and that was the case for me too. I, I did a lot of herbs and that was helpful, but there, were, there are certain parasites that are just really hard to get that way. So um, my, the way I look at it, it's, it's more inclusive than exclusive. Like what is the thing that can, that can be most effective in healing and cause the least harm? Often that's diet, lifestyle, behavior change, and, and herbs and supplements, but sometimes it can be a drug. Right. So let's talk about diet and more specifically the diet, your diet that you used in the healing process and how mm -hmm. your diet has evolved over the years. You know, some people know you oh, he's the paleo guy. So like what, what, you know, what does that, yeah. what did that look like then? And what does that look like today? Yeah, so the, my first exposure was actually to the Weston Price um, way of looking at nutrition, which was just very nutrient-dense food, lots of bone broth, um, you know, before bone broth was cool, yep. <laughs> um, before there were any bone broth companies and, and bone broth uh, bars and, and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, meat, fish, fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, um, and lots of broth, sauerkraut, natural probiotics, kefir, things like that that you know that rebuild your beneficial gut bacteria. And and I started with that. They also recommend um, consuming some whole grains and legumes that have been properly soaked and prepared. But I found that those didn't work for me with my gut being in the condition that it was. And so I eliminated those without really have, having ever heard about what paleo diet or what it was, but that's if that's essentially what I ended up on. And then I met, uh, you know, Rob Wolf and her, uh, connected with some other people who were, who were in the paleo movement and realized that that's what I was doing. And, um, and it, you know, made a lot of sense to me and it still does just this ancestral approach to food, the foods that we've been eating for, you know, the vast majority of our evolutionary history that our bodies are well adapted to. They're, they're nutrient dense, they're anti-inflammatory, they're low in, in calories uh, relative to like processed and refined foods. Um, and so that's still the, the basic template of my diet. But even in my first book, which had the somewhat misleading uh, word paleo in the title sure. because it wasn't really a strict paleo book, 
I suggested that we use that as a kind of starting place, but that many people can tolerate, you know, some whole grain or legumes when they're prop when they're well prepared or even full fat fermented dairy products like butter and ghee and kefir and yogurt they can tolerate things like dark chocolate you know alcohol in moderation all of these things i think can be included in the diet if they're tolerated by the individual and that means that you know it's not you don't have to be as strict it means you're getting more nutrients and a lot of these foods do have good nutrients not only for the for for you but for your gut microbiota like the legumes for example and so i kind of refer to it as a paleo, loosely as a paleo template i took a lot of heat for that book from the paleo community because they're like you know this isn't a paleo diet you're telling people they can eat grains and dairy and legumes there's, right. there's nothing paleo about it I, I, I don't disagree with that. Um, but I, I, you know, paleo was probably the closest that sure. word that came to what I was trying to describe with some modifications. So how would you, if you're looking at your diet today, how would you break up in a percentage basis loosely, like the food groups of like what mm -hmm. makes up your diet, like what percentages, you know, vegetables, legumes, dairy, meat, all that stuff. I eat a ton of vegetables. Um, that's probably the, the, the main, main thing that I eat. Um, I eat some whole fruit, not a lot, um, you know, mostly berries. And I tend to eat berries uh, more than any other type of fruit. Uh, and that's not because I think whole fruit is bad for you. It's just what works better for me. Um, don't eat a lot of grains and legumes still to this day. Um, you know, occasionally I will. Um, but then I will have fish, uh, diff all different kinds of meat and poultry, uh, lots of nuts and seeds. And, you know, if you were to look at my plate, like most, most meals, it's going to be at least two thirds vegetables and plants and maybe one third meat or sure. fish. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants, like <laughs> Berkeley's own Michael Pollan. <laughs> it's not too different. You know, it really isn't. I mean, it, it. We talked about this before, but, you know, one of the biggest misconceptions of paleo or paleo type of diets is that they're like all meat diets. Right. And there is now this trend of carnivore. The carnivore which is it. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, so I think that, uh, you know, I, I don't begrudge people for trying that because most of the people who are trying carnivore have been are really sick and they haven't been able to find help in any other way. And they do it and they do feel better. My theory for why that happens is that carnivore diet is a very low residue diet, which means that meat is absorbed pretty high up in the digestive tract. There's nothing left over to feed any of the, the, the bad bacteria that I think are often present in many of the conditions that people are trying to treat. And so in some way, it's almost like a way of fasting for an extended period mm. without fasting, <laughs> you know, without the, you can't fast for, for, you know, six months, you'll die. Um, but these people are getting some of the benefits that you get from fasting, which is one of the most powerful health interventions by just eating meat. Now, having said that, I don't, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily beneficial to do long term. We have to be able to separate something that is therapeutic and helpful in the short term versus, you know, what are the long-term effects of that? And I think we just don't know enough about what the long-term effects are of eating only meat. And when I look at the ancestral, uh, we, we look at hunter-gatherer groups, contemporary, both contemporary and past, I'm not aware of any 
uh, population that only ate meat. Right. Um, I, every population that's been studied ate some combination of, of animal foods and plants. That's what Walter Longo said about avocados. He was like, I don't know if they're good. We, I can't trace a population that just only ate avocados. Yeah. We're, maybe we're eating too much. I was like, whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa. It's like you just said there's no Santa Claus. Um, don't take away my guacamole. Yeah, put that back. So I'm going to go back to just have a little fun. You mentioned vegetables, fruits, and, and nuts. What are your, what are your like most underrated or, or favorites in each of those buckets? Uh, I eat a pretty wide variety of nuts and seeds. So I'll often have like a big salad at lunch and I'll have, you know, sometimes I'll have pine nuts. Sometimes I'll have like pumpkin seeds and jicama with some avocado, a kind of more like Mexican style salad. Sometimes I'll have walnuts and I'll toast, you know, I'll toast the walnuts. I'll have hazelnuts. I'll have almond slivers. I just, I, I think... You know, if there's one category of foods that everybody agrees is healthy and beneficial, it's nuts. Yeah. In the mono, what what the about cashews? What okay, <laughs> of course. Well, we have um, cashews. I, I just don't like that much. I don't think they're problematic. You know, I think like paleo, for example, paleo people who say, no, you can't eat that because it's a legume. Um, I'm not too worried about that. Uh, peanuts. peanuts, I'm not a big fan. I mean, there, there is an aflatoxin issue there that I think can be real and... I don't tend to go towards peanuts and cashews very much, but almost all other nuts and seeds are fair game. And what about what's your favorite vegetable? Oh, that's a tough one. I I mean, for me, it's really about variety. We've got a garden in the backyard, we, and so I like to really eat seasonally. Um, so right now, we're we you know we've been fin eating a lot of asparagus, uh, lots of greens that are coming you know really yep. bursting out in the garden. I eat a lot of herbs, uh, fresh herbs. Have um, a favorite? Uh, or let's say underrated. There are a lot of hot herbs these days. What's an yeah. underrated herb? Um, I don't know. I mean, I've been really enjoying our, I think mint is not underrated at all, but I, uh, we have a variety of mint plants in our backyard. And for me, with my history of gut stuff, um, mint's relaxing it relaxes a smooth muscle I, I really like the taste of mint and um it's pretty nutrient dense so when i when i wrote my first book i had a chart of nutrient dense the nutrient density of food and most people are surprised to see that organ meats are number one but number two is herbs and spices so i think that's one way that we can easily add a lot of nutrient density to our diet yeah. is just to eat a lot of both fresh and dried herbs and spices. So what's your take on sea vegetables? Oh, I think they're great. Um, and they're a good source of iodine that most and, and a lot of Americans, especially people who this is one of the one of the unintended consequences of a, of a healthy diet. So, you know, uh, we started adding iodine to salt to table salt because uh, you know many years ago because most Americans weren't getting enough iodine there aren't very many sources of iodine in the diet the main ones are fish heads <laughs> which I, I don't think many people are eating fish head soup uh, not in um, our mainstream culture uh, sea vegetables again not many people eating those and and dairy products and not because it's in the dairy itself but it's in the tanks Right. The, the iodophore cleanser that they use to clean the, the milk tanks. So if you're on a, a diet that doesn't include dairy, which a lot of people who are doing a, a healthy diet uh, are, are excluding dairy, they're not eating sea vegetables and they're not consuming fish heads and they're, level, they're, and they're consuming sea salt 
instead of table salt, which is generally a good idea, then they're not getting much iodine. I think sea veggies can fill the gap there. So two, two things that are very trendy right now, intermittent fasting and keto. Yeah. We'll start with IF. So I think it can, can be very helpful. I use, we use it a lot in our practice, but it really depends. You have to really consider what the backdrop is. So, uh, intermittent fasting, one of the reasons it's beneficial is it's what we call a hormetic stressor. That means that it's a, a stressor that causes a positive adaptation. Um, lots of things work this way. Exercise is a great example. The reason exercise is beneficial is it puts a stress on the body, but then the body responds to that stress in a positive way. Like if you lift weights and you lift until you failure, then the body's going to regrow that muscle bigger so that it can meet that challenge the next time. That's a hormetic stressor. Intermittent fasting works that way. Um, so let's say you're sleeping pretty well, you're taking care of yourself, you're eating a good diet, and you add intermittent fasting. That can be a positive stressor. But let's say you're burning the candle at both ends. You've got young kids at home. Oh no! You're Is not that, sleeping. Where's my coffee? <laughs> you're, you're, you know, you're under a lot of stress already, and then you add this additional stressor every day. That can push people, I think, into a, a depleted state. And so, you know, a good example of this would be like a, a woman who, let's say in her mid thirties, who's working full time, has two kids, is going, doing CrossFit three or four times a week. That's a lot of stress in the, in the background. And then adding intermittent fasting every day on top of that could be problematic. Whereas someone who's like a sedentary office worker, who's 60 pounds overweight and has prediabetes, if they add intermittent fasting every day, it's probably going to be beneficial. So we really need to look at each individual case. And how do you look at it in terms of, is it 16, eight, is it 14, is it 12? How do you, everyone, how do you yeah. think about it? Or does it vary in your mind? It, it would vary. And I think in, you know, some people do like alternate day fasting better. Some people like 16, eight, or some people do 18, six. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, to really get some significant benefit, you got to be at least, you know, 14. Right. But it's it's a spectrum, you know. It's not like you get no benefit at at 12 to 13. You know, most a lot of Americans are eating, you know, every few hours and never fast for more than, you know, 6 to 7 hours be, uh, be, between meals. And so in, improvement over that can can be beneficial for most people. What about keto? My response there is similar. Incredibly powerful therapeutic tool, but um, as in the case with a carnivore diet, we need to be careful about extending something that I think is mostly a therapeutic tool to being an everyday for the rest of your life thing. And uh, again, if we look at traditional cultures, I'm not aware of any culture that was voluntarily on a keto diet for their entire time. You know, yep. the Inuit are often offered as an example but they lived in a very marginal environment and they made a huge effort to acquire plant foods whenever they could. And and then in the spring when the, you know, in the summer when the the snow thawed, they they ate as as, as much of that as they could. Um, I think what makes sense to me, and this is actually what I do myself is, um, unless you're trying to treat like a neurological condition. So like sometimes kids with epilepsy, for Mm -hmm. example, they will put them on a, you know, a continual ketogenic diet under close supervision because that in that situation, if they 
the, the alternative is, is so much worse, you know, like having seizures all day and being on medication that is absolutely horrific for them. But for the gen, you know, general health average person, I think a cyclical approach makes the most sense where you cycle in and out of periods right. of ketosis. And that helps to prevent the downregulation of met metabolism that can happen with long-term keto where your body is like, huh, are we going into a starvation period here? Uh, and, that, and that does happen. So right. periods of refeeding where you're eating more carbohydrates and eating more calories um, can be helpful in, in avoiding that. So, and, and I think that mimics what happened in a natural environment more. There were probably periods of, of food or carbohydrate scarcity at certain times of year where we went into ketosis, but I don't think it's um, physiologically normal for most human beings to be in ketosis all the time. Yeah, I, I love how you summarize carnivore, keto, and IF as therapeutic tools. Yeah. Not, it's not an everyday forever. It's not. Um, That's how I, I see it. Yeah, I, I know a lot of people would disagree with no, that. I think it's important. <laughs> Look, I, I, I agree with you. And I think like anything, your body... Uh, it's thrown it works because your body and i am not a medical professional all my limited understanding is your body gets thrown into a, a certain state where certain things happen but yeah. they they work because you're, you're moving from uh normal if you will to something that's a little bit out of the ordinary yeah. but if that becomes the ordinary that's a little potentially dangerous yes and then the other thing is that um and this is true for fasting as well as ketosis is that some of the more recent research suggests that um, some of the benefit that we get from it comes from when we start eating again or broader diet again. So mm -hmm. it's not just the benefit that happens when we're in the fasted state or in ketosis. It's when we start eating again, that causes some kind of signaling and things to happen in the body right. that leads to the beneficial changes that we see. So actually cycling in and out of it more often, um, rather than staying in ketosis or fast at doing long fast might be actually so better. Your body adapts. Yeah. It's smart. Mm -hmm. Then it doesn't work. It's like anything. I right. go back to, you know, working out the gym. Yeah. Everything works until it doesn't. Right. Until you hit that plateau. Exactly. So, yeah. And so moving off diet, uh, I want to hit stress and that's a tough one. That's a, that's the <laughs> toughest one. Um, you know, I've, I've been, treating patients for over a decade now. And I think that stress is almost always the elephant in the room. It's the thing that, you know, I can get my patients to follow just about any diet, to take any number of supplements and any different kind, kind of supplements and even physical activity. You know, um, most people are willing to make changes there, but we're able to, but stress is so pervasive in our modern world and it's uh, making changes to how we manage stress actually requires us to change ourselves change how we relate to ourselves how we relate to the world around us you know for example if i'm the type of person who has a belief system where i'm only you know worthy or valuable if i accomplish a ton of stuff every day then it's not so easy to just tell me don't you know like meditate and, and take it easy and rest because that's <laughs> going to directly conflict with that belief system sure. So it's really much more difficult um, for, I think, for a lot of people to make progress here. But it's so important because when you look at the research now, there is, I'm not aware of any modern chronic inflammatory disease that is not strongly correlated with stress. And as a category, I would say autoimmune disease is probably the, one of the fastest growing 
groups of diseases. Now, you know, some estimates suggest that one in four women and one in six men have an autoimmune disease, and we're discovering new ones every year. And I think the number one trigger for autoimmune disease is stress. Right. So what do you do? You're, you've got an incredible business. You see patients. You have a family. You travel. You're doing this interview in New York with me, and you live <laughs> in the Bay Area. You know, you, yeah. You've got a lot going on. What do you do when you're stressed? I'll just give you an example of the last 24 hours so, since I was flying here to, to and arriving late last night and, you know, for this interview. So on the plane, when I take off, I always do meditation. It's a great time. You know, I mean, it used to be that you couldn't even use a device when you're taking oh, those off. Days Remember were those over. days? Oh, those days were, yeah. <laughs> and so you kind of just had to sit there, and that's when I developed that habit. But now I've, I've just continued doing it. So it's usually like a 20, 25-minute period between when the plane starts to taxi. It's like a good, that's like a good one. Yeah. It's a good takeoff at SFO. It, or it's a good flying. one, yeah. It was, unfortunately, <laughs> I had a three-hour wait in the airport on the way here. <laughs> that's a different story. Um, so, yeah, I'll usually I'll meditate on, on, on the plane as, you know, until they do the, the seatbelt thing or the, the one where you can now take out your computer and, and use that device. And then, depending on how long the plane ride is, you know, I'll Sometimes I'll get up and I'm that guy who will be like standing up and doing some stretching and just. I'm that guy too. <laughs> try, you know, um, especially on a long flight, like five hours. You hour and I flight. are not. You're t- how tall are you? Six four, six five? Uh, six three. Six you're three. Taller I'm than six me. seven. Yeah. You and I are not built for airplanes. <laughs> no, definitely not. So, and then, you know, I, I, I got. Um, in pretty late and but i'm still i was still on pacific time so i have my routine to kind of adjust to the new time zone which i use these glasses you know the the amber tinted glasses to block out blue light when i arrive i took some melatonin and i i laid down and i did a little uh deep relaxation technique that i uh, learned many many years ago just to kind of help my body settle and arrive in the new time zone um this morning uh woke up did about uh, 20 to 25 minutes of yoga and then took a shower you know was reviewing some stuff for today because I've got some other interviewer views and things like that and then I had an extra 10 or 15 minutes before I was going to summon the the lift to get over here so I just sat in a chair and did another little meditation period so I mean hopefully listeners can see that this it's not you know I'm not necessarily like meditating for an hour at a time or going to crossfit or going to kind of vipassana right no i'm just working it into my daily life you know i also took a walk in madison park which is outside of my hotel for 15 minutes just to get some sun on my body so it's little things and little changes well i love that because i'm a big believer in the space in between Mm -hmm. if you think about your day and it's busy there's always like these spaces in between you know do you take the stairs do you what do you do while you're waiting you got a couple minutes here a couple minutes there and i think with devices and look we all do this myself included is you go to the device fills up that space exactly like i remember going to restaurants we're about the same age like going Mm -hmm. to restaurants you know you go to a restaurant and you talk yeah we look at the menu or if you went alone you sat at the bar you talk to the person next to you that's done that's done you go to a restaurant now you see everyone around the table and there's no space in between no everyone's on their phones and and look like technology is great but to me it's the space in between is such a for people who are just 
compressed for time. The space, in, yeah. there's so much space in between. Yeah. Minute there, minute there. I do everything in like less than 10 minutes. Absolutely. It's such a great point. I actually, at, at a Paleo FX conference, I gave a talk on technology addiction. So this is an area of big interest for me. And I think, you know, we're on the same page there. I talked a lot about the spaces in between and how, you know, on the way over here, for example, I took a lift and, um, you know, I'm like you, I, I'm not immune to the, uh, nobody is immune to the, the, how much these devices draw us in, but I do often will make an effort like, Oh, I'm, I'm instead of pulling out my phone and checking my email, I'm just going to sit here in the car and look out the window and Enjoy the check, check out yeah, the Brooklyn bridge yep. <laughs> and, and, um, and just kind of let my mind wander. And there's, there's something called the default mode. Uh, have you heard of this? <clears throat> so it's a, it's a kind of brain state that we go into when we're not focused on something. And scientists, neuroscientists believe that that is really um, the what where innovation happens, where we do this kind of self-reflective behavior and make sense of our own experience and kind of integrate our, you know, what happens to us into our self-image and our, and I'm, I'm kind of terrified about what's going to happen because now we have an entire generation who, you know, young, both people our age and younger who are not spending any time, almost no time in the vert, in that default mode. Do you network. read Cal Newport's book? Yeah. yeah my, I love Colleen, books. my wife just read it. She's like, you need to read this. Right. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I will. Uh, I will. Why don't I? Yeah. I'm busy right now. <laughs> well, timing not good since yeah. we had a little newborn. I'm like, yeah, I no. will read it. I promise. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to close. So sleep, you mentioned yeah. melatonin. Yeah. Um, Melatonin, my understanding is it definitely works for exactly the type of situation you were in, yeah. flight, jet lag, but not yeah. an everyday thing. Yeah. What, what do you advise people for sleep? So, you know, starting from a 30,000 foot view, um, you cannot run around like a chicken with your head cut off all day and then expect to just fall asleep and, and sleep well. That's the biggest challenge I think most of us are facing. And so my kind of secret weapon, if, if you will, for sleep is actually regulating your nervous system throughout the day. The more you can do that, the, the more you, you just, the body knows how to sleep. I mean, that's, we've been doing that for a long time. So it's more a question of removing the obstacles to, to good sleep as a starting point. Because if you don't do that, then you're going to have to rely on lots of, you know, medications or supplements or things that are basically trying to overcome that overstimulated nervous system at night. So that's, that's the starting place. Um, from there, I think I'm also a big believer in, in bedtime routines. So, you know, not using devices within a, an hour and a half, you know, if two hours, I can't get most of my patients to do, and I can't even do that sometimes, but uh, certainly within an hour before sleep, wearing the glasses at night to block out the blue light or using the, the built-in operating system features that a lot of devices have now. Um, you know, not checking your work email right before bed to like get your, you know, which will really get your mind going. Uh, for some, you know, doing some meditation or relaxation or taking a hot shower or bath or something like that to, to build in a routine, doing something relaxing before bed can help a ton. Um and then, you know, in terms of like supplements and, and other interventions, they really run the gamut depending on what the issue is. Um, one of the things I think is really important is maintaining a cool temperature in, in the yeah. bedroom. 
And there's different ways of doing that. You know, one is the obvious way of like if you know opening a window or air conditioning if you live in a hot place. But um, there's a device that I use now, and I've been recommending for a lot of my patients um, called the Chili Powder. Their new version is the Uler O O L E R, and it's like a, a almost like a mattress pad. You put you know over your uh, your bed, and it's got and it circulates cool water through it and it cools the surface temperature of the bed because again from an evolutionary perspective we evolved sleeping on cold ground we might have had you know furs and skins piled on top of us but we slept on a cold ground and 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 there's research showing that when you uh, maintain a lower body temperature you'll get more deep sleep Mm. and it's also a more economical way of cooling of, of of maintaining coolness than ac especially in a hot place and so that that's been a pretty big uh, a game changer for me actually in my sleep and a lot of my patients sleep um you know magnesium can be helpful particularly certain forms of uh, magnesium glycinate three and eight um there's l-theanine can be helpful uh a lot of uh, there are a lot of herbs even you know like yogi tea for example has a the bedtime their bedtime tea can be quite effective for most people and very safe and well tolerated as you mentioned melatonin can can be helpful temp, you know in certain situations like when you're traveling crossing time zones or for short periods i don't generally love using doses above one milligram for longer periods of time some people you know, can use like two or 300 micrograms, which is a very low dose, like sub-physiologic dose that um, will not tend to cause the downsides of high-dose melatonin over a long right. period and can help them sleep. I'll do magnesium glycinate with uh, GABA and jujube. Yeah, that works. It works. I need it right now with, with the little one. <laughs> yeah, um, so I remember those days. Yeah. Um, so Western medicine functional medicine a lot of good's happening mm-hmm. but we have a long way to go yeah what what do you what do we need to do in your opinion to, to really get health right that's ah, a big question um you know my my most recent book on conventional medicine my my core argument that was is that we have a medical system that's not well suited to tackle our current problem so the, right. the biggest problem we face by far is chronic disease now that wasn't true in 1900. In 1900, the top three causes of death were all acute infectious diseases like typhoid, tuberculosis, and pneumonia. And so our medical paradigm kind of evolved in a world where those were the primary challenges. And it's quite good at doing those things. Like if I get hit by a bus or you break sure. my arm, I want to go to the hospital. Yep. I don't want to go to the acupuncturist. Yep. Later, I, I do, but not right away. And Yet now we've got seven of 10 causes of death or chronic disease, six in 10 Americans have a chronic disease, four in 10 have multiple chronic diseases. It accounts for 90% of the almost 4 trillion we spend on healthcare. And um, you know our medical paradigm, which is based on suppressing symptoms with drugs, is just not effective for chronic disease. So uh, we need an approach that is effective for that since that is the problem. And when you look at it, most healthcare is self-care. So, you know, we tend to think of healthcare as something that happens in the doctor's office. And sure, you know, some part of it does, but what happens for the other 99.99% of your year? Right. <laughs> you have a few doctor's appointments a year, you're making choices every day on what to eat, everything that we've been talking about. Right. So we need an approach that is more 
that acknowledges that and it and gives people the guidance and support that they need in order to make better choices. And, and then when things do go off the rails, an approach that is geared towards addressing the root cause of the problem, like in your case, the parasite, yep. um, rather than just you know telling you that you have IBS and I'm going to give you some drugs to help manage that. I saw everyone. I, I saw a neurologist. People thought yeah. I was nuts. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the other part of the parasites. But so I think that's that. You know, uh, nothing new for maybe a lot of your, your listeners or people are hearing this. I think my insights over the last few years have been that um, as powerful and effect as effective as functional medicine is, we've we've got a ways to go before it can scale. Right. Um, the biggest challenge we face right now is that uh, most of, you know, if you go see a functional medicine doctor, you're typically paying out of pocket for a mm -hmm. lot of the services. And that's just out of reach for the vast majority of the population. And, you know, hopefully someday we'll see more insurance coverage for it. And because I believe that it actually is a more economic model. I mean, to use a, an example, if you have a patient with type to diabetes, it costs the healthcare system about 15 grand a year to care for that one person. So if you imagine over 40 years, that's $600,000. Wow. What if we spent $5,000 up front just doing some testing and setting them up with a health coach and a sure. personal trainer? We could prevent them from having diabetes in the first place or even reverse it and potentially you know, save the healthcare system $595,000. I mean, would you invest $5,000 sure. to make $595,000? Sure. That's a pretty Sign good investment. Up. Let's <laughs> yeah. talk about that after the show. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that once we, if we could make the shift, it would be, even though there's, you know, it's more costly up front in some way, it's what you save way more over the long term. But unfortunately, our, it's, you know, it's complex, like how to make the shift from, from, from where we are now to that. And so, I've just become an even bigger believer in how can we support people in making the behavior and lifestyle changes that they need to make to prevent and reverse disease because that's where we can get the most leverage and we don't need to wait around for a conventional medical system to catch up to that. I love that. So we talked before the show uh, about how much the wellness world has changed since the last time we saw each other, 2014 at Revitalize. Yeah. Uh, it's been awesome. A lot, of, a lot of good stuff happening. Uh, where do you see the conversation going, say, like in a year from now? Like, what are we going to be talking about? What's new and exciting to you? What do you think the future entails? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's some some interesting themes. Um, uh, not to belabor this point, I do think um, even in the conventional medical world, um, people are really see, starting to see the light in terms of the importance of behavior change. And this is why health coaching has really blown up and i mean in terms of it's been around for a long time but the level of awareness of what health coaching is and, and what it should be uh, which are actually kind of two different things i think to some extent right now um, so for example um, it's been really like the wild west in health coaching like you could just put health coach on your business card tomorrow sure. and there's no regulation you know nobody um, would really even know or, or care um, except maybe your clients, but, <laughs> um, now, um, there's a big movement to create more recognized standards for training and education of health coaches. So there's an organization called the Nas uh, national board of health and wellness coaches. It used to be international consortium of health and wellness coaches, and they've teamed up with the national board of medical examiners or NBME 
who is the organization that determines what an MD has to study in order to earn that license. And they also advise specialty boards like gastroenterology, cardiology, right. et cetera, on what they need to learn in order to get that specialty. And they've now developed a credential for health coaches that is based on scientific evidence of what works. And so they've, they've basically laid out, like these are all the skills and competencies that a health coach should develop. And that will open up the possibility of health insurance coverage at some point, because a health insurance company isn't just going to cover a session with some, someone who calls himself a health coach and doesn't have, you know, evidence-based training, but this credential that, um, will open up the possibility for that. And then that will mean that health coaching could potentially scale. And Mm -hmm. because it's not, nothing's going to scale that people can't access through their insurance. And I mean, that's a whole nother discussion of the health insurance world, but, um, so I'm excited about that. I'm really excited about the impact that health coaching can make because, you know, it takes only about a year to train a health coach versus six years or more and hundreds of thousands of dollars to train doctors. And, you know, with doctors having 10 to 12 minute visits with patients, there's just never enough time to talk about the things that really will, will make the difference. The other thing that I think is interesting that I'm excited about, but also feel some sense of of caution or, or at least healthy skepticism, at least at this point is, is AI and in bioinformatics. And, and I think that is going to revolutionize healthcare at some point. I don't think we're quite there yet. I think we're at the level where we can collect a ton of data, but we don't yet fully understand how to make sense of it. And like microbiome sequencing is a, is a really good example. That was what I mentioned, uh, Mason and Dudley with longevity were on the podcast or doing some interesting stuff there. They are. And, and I, um, I love that. And I love, you know, we do some of that testing ourselves and, and what I've learned so far in doing a lot of that testing with patients is there's some stuff that is really actionable already. Mm -hmm. Like we know what to do. Um, but we don't really even yet know what a healthy microbiome is for a given person. And the more we learn, the more we start to understand that it might be pretty individual. It might be almost like a thumbprint. Uh, so yeah, I think five to 10 years down the line, um, that's going to be an incredibly powerful tool for clinicians to use. And it's going to be something that can actually meaning, meaningfully improve people's lives. Right now I see I'm, a, I'm just a little cautious about it because I see people making, coming to conclusions and making inferences that I don't think are really supported by the data. For example, you know, I don't think it's possible now to sequence your microbiome and, and be told what to eat based on those right. results. It's yeah. It's primitive. It's, it's like uh, Netscape. <laughs> right. You know, no, I think it's that's just, a good, it's good browser. It yeah. works. It's, 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 yeah. it's, it's game changing. It's huge, but yeah. you know, Chrome's a lot faster these days. Right. No. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or yeah, you, we're kind of like, remember, if you're old enough, like you and I are the same age, you can remember when the web was like gray backgrounds with blue links and yeah. little pictures on it. You yeah. Know? Um, so to close the interview, I want to go back to what we discussed in the beginning and, you know, going through that, that, that struggle with your personal health. And in my buddy Green, we always say it's, wellness is one of mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, and environmental well-being, and all these things are interconnected, hence my buddy green, one word, and not threes. Yeah. And I wanted to go back, the, the the spiritual, emotional, when you're going through, for people listening who maybe, you know, not feeling so great, or, you know, 
talk about that. Like any advice to them on those struggles? Because I think the diet, Pete, there are things like people who are informed. It's like, okay, I can, I can eat this way. I can see right. these practitioners. But so much of it is what's happening spiritually, emotionally, and mentally, if you will. Absolutely. And that's an important piece. Any advice for those people and how you got through that with mindset? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the starting point uh, and the thing that I learned that was most transformative for me was empathy and compassion for myself. Um, I was a pretty type A um, per kid growing up. And, you know, some might argue that I still am <laughs> that way. Um, but this was, it was a wake up call. And I really, I don't believe that things happen for a reason, but I believe that when things happen, we have a choice uh, uh, about how we respond. And we can either, you know, put our head in the sand and, and try to keep living our life the way we were before, or we can actually be open to what we can learn in that situation. And, um, you know, when I was completely debilitated, didn't know what my life was going to look like and, you know, didn't know if I was going to be able to live a, a, a normal life. Um, I found that just having, you know, as much compassion for myself in that place as I could and empathy for myself was, uh, really, uh, that kind of self-acceptance actually opened up, a, um, the possibility for me to respond in an appropriate way. Whereas if I'm just continually fighting against what is and what's happening, I'm not able to, to really respond in the way that I need to. So that was a huge thing. And, and I think more recently, there's been some really interesting discoveries in the field of neuroplasticity um, that suggest that our thoughts and our emotions and our behavior, just the way that we experience the world and the way we think about ourselves and our own experience has a powerful effect on, on everything in our bodies uh, and gene expression to, you know, how our digestive system functions. And, um, so I've, you know, really recommend, like there's a great book called hardwiring happiness, for example, by Rick Hansen, who's a neuropsychologist, um, that has some great tools for how you can, um, use these insights in, in neuroplasticity to kind of rewire your brain to make it more uh, conducive for health and, and happiness. I love that. Amen. Chris Kresser, thanks Thank so you. much. Thank you, Jason. Pleasure. Pleasure.